This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Coming up, Donald Trump told lies every day, but so did Democrats, who now have most of the microphones to themselves. We'll hear from a former CIA analyst who knows a great deal about lying. Mumia Abu-Jamal has a commentary on the American way of fascism, and we'll discuss anti-black racism in Brazil and police brutality and corruption in Nigeria. But first, a report by the Institute for Policy Studies shows that the billionaire class in the U.S. has grabbed more money in shorter time during this pandemic and economic crisis than has ever been amassed in the history of the world. The crisis has given birth to 46 new billionaires for a total of 660 super-rich oligarchs, while the billionaire class has added more than a trillion dollars to their already fabulous wealth. Omar Ocampo was one of the researchers that studied this explosion of billionaire wealth. The billionaire class in the United States has benefited a lot from the pandemic. Right now, there are currently 661 billionaires in the United States with a total of $4.1 trillion in wealth. And mid-March, there was only like 617 billionaires, and they had like $2.9 trillion in wealth. So they had a a $1.2 trillion increase in in wealth during the pandemic, and this is at a time where there are people who are losing income or losing their jobs entirely. They're having increased housing insecurity. In recent or past history, have we ever seen such a growth among those at the richest stratospheric reaches of the economy? On this scale, no. So this is interesting because the, the last time we had a, you know, a great recession, it impacted almost everyone equally. I mean, the difference between your average person, let's take a look at you know, African-American workers. You know, it took like almost a decade for income and wealth for African-Americans to recover to their pre-Great Recession levels. But here, you know, for the billionaire class at that time, it took them about like two, three years to recover their wealth to their, you know, pre-Great Recession levels. But here, you know, they uh, rebounded almost like immediately. So they recovered rather quickly and, and it has been on the upward trend ever since. And then I think that's because they have captured the economy. They're able to use their wealth. They're able to translate their wealth into political power and basically to get preferential treatment from the state. And the state basically guaranteed like a floor for like investors. And therefore they were able to invest in some risky assets and their wealth system continues to go up and up. Yes, there's a great contrast between the way the state protects the billionaires and their ever increasing wealth and the plight of everybody else, including smaller businesses. A hundred thousand businesses have closed since the crisis began. And 73 million people lost work, according to your study. And yet the billionaires are one-third richer than when the crisis began. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the billionaire class has a vested interest in protecting their wealth from taxation, and they deploy their resources politically. You know, they hire an army of professionals to exploit the tax system and to donate to the campaigns of politicians who will give them, who will lower their taxes or give them a bailout when they start to go under. And I think this is to the detriment of democracy because when there's like material inequality, there's also political inequality. And this is an imbalance that the billionaire class, this is what they like because it, it, they're able to protect their economic interests and force democratic institutions to grow unresponsive to their constituencies. Yes, the political power of billionaires was striking even before this corona crisis. Witness Bloomberg's dominance of the Democratic Party. Yeah, and I think one of the funniest things that actually happened during Bloomberg's campaign was that he had kind of like a Freudian slip where he started talking about how he basically bought the Congress that came into power in 2018. So yeah, he's basically an oligarch who is able to influence policy on the Democratic Party. And I think his candidacy kind of represented a resistance to the wealth taxes that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders were proposing. And, you know, those wealth taxes could have been used to fund a lot of things, like, a, you know, universal health care. It could have paid for canceling student debt, uh, free public education. Those type of resources could have been to fund something that will help close the wealth gap and also the racial wealth gap, something like a federal jobs guarantee, a baby bond program, expand financial services to communities that are unbanked or underbanked. Consolidation, that is, the rich getting richer and big corporations eating up the smaller ones, that's a characteristic of late-stage capitalism. But what we're witnessing now is not just the gradual consolidation, but a great leap into an abyss. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the way we can reverse this I would say extreme levels of wealth concentration. One is taxation. So taxation is definitely a mechanism, but it's simply like one tool. I think we also need to work on solutions that prevent such wealth concentration to happen in the first place. And plus also tax regimes can also be like reversed at like a future date. So let's say like if we were to like increase the state tax and you know that can be in place for the next 10 years, but then you know they can find ways to reverse that. So we need to create an economic system that does not allow for wealth to be extremely concentrated. And I think, you know, this could be done by growing the labor movement, having solidarity, having workers participate on the boards of their companies, or we could have some workplace democracy and worker ownership. And this way, workers can decide how to distribute the profits that they produce. A result of this obscene concentration of wealth is the weakening of the public sector when, mm-hmm. when in fact, we need a stronger public sector to defend the people. No, absolutely. So this is the, you know, one of the problems with, you know, uh, you know U.S. Um, institutions, that it normally tends to favor the people who have economic privileges. And... When wealth is concentrated in the hands of a small minority, then they're going to develop institutions that either protects their economic privileges. And one of the things that they do is that they revolt against the tax system and that deprives the state of resources, housing, health care, and education. And a whole other number of uh, local services that should be provided to the people, 
if we have a, a government that responds to the demands of its populace, we wouldn't have such a great concentrations of wealth to begin with. Yes, these concentrations of wealth not only starve the public sector, but they allow this tiny but super influential class to direct the shape of the economy in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And then the most interesting thing that something that has happened recently is that, you know, when they're unable to manipulate the market essentially in their favor, they get upset and that's when they want to talk about regulation. And this is something that's happened, you know, over the past week with the, you know, the game stock where ordinary non-professional retail traders got involved in the market. They made the price of the stock go skyrocket. And this caused like a lot of hedge fund Wall Street types to lose billions of dollars. And they got, you know, really upset. And now they want to have some type of regulation so it can never uh, happen again because now they're losing their monopoly power on to dictate what direction the economy goes. Most of the politicians of both corporate parties are continually fighting against anything that smacks of class warfare. But obviously, Mm -hmm. class warfare is continuing and the billionaires are winning hands down. Yes, absolutely. And one thing that I think that surprised me the most when I've I've been doing this research on, you know, wealth inequality and wealth concentration is that the economic policies of like even the Republican Party is not even popular with its base. The 2017 tax cuts that Trump implemented is one of the most unpopular pieces of legislation in in modern history. So there's a space for some bipartisanship there to basically break up the extreme concentration of wealth by the billionaire class. Fortunately, I would say that in the short term, there's there's reasons to be optimistic because people who have a left-wing agenda who are pro-worker, they're starting to get more of limelight and more public support. So someone like Alexander Ocasio-Cortez and Bowman in New York, they're people who recognize that there's not only systemic racism, but that there's basically a, a form of domination by the capitalist class on the workers and that they're not paying their workers in accordance to their productivity and they're paying them less than the value that they produce. But the thing is that we still have a lot more work to do. It's a small minority and the billionaire class would do everything in their power to basically hamper any efforts to produce a more democratic economy. They will definitely try to clamp down on that. The corporate media is currently shrieking about the proliferation of what it calls conspiracy theories. But with such awesome power accumulating to such a small group at the top, how can people not think in terms of conspiracies by the 1%? Exactly. I think the the corporate media likes to focus on some of the outlandish conspiracy theories that normally bubbles up throughout social media. But No one ever wants to talk about that the billionaire class, they own a lot of our economy and own a lot of the systems and corporations that basically give us our information. Billionaires own newspapers, they own TV networks, and so therefore they don't have the interest or the ability to speak about the concentration of media ownership. So that's definitely a space that needs to be democratized, and I think the internet is doing a good job of democratizing information and giving people multiple sources and basically you know, raise some class consciousness so people can realize that we need to have a more democratic and participatory system where the everyday person who doesn't make 
$10 million a year is able to have an equal voice and be part of the decision-making process. And yet the internet and social media are physically owned by these same multi-billionaires. Absolutely. So it's an interesting conversation that has occurred. So some people you know, celebrated the fact that Jack Dorsey basically banned Trump from Twitter. But some people who are part of the critical left, they think that this is something that is not positive at all. And then they can easily start cracking down on them without much coverage. You know, the Twitter has banned a whole bunch of users who are anti-fascist. And this does not set like a really good precedent. So the solution would be to basically to democratize these large social media platforms so people can all have a say on how they're able to participate in the dissemination of information. Yes, folks speak most often about converting these social media outlets into public utilities so that the billionaire Mm -hmm. class could not dictate. But that's anathema to these same people who wield so much power. Absolutely. There's an ideological commitment. There's also an ideological component to this because they will say that the private sector is inherently more efficient, but that's not true at all. But they don't want it to be converted into a public utility because then that would lessen their power and their influence over you know, public discourse. So they will resist that on every measure. That was Omar Ocampo of the Institute for Policy Studies, speaking from Washington. Max Blumenthal and Ben Norton of the Gray Zone are serious journalists of the left. They recently interviewed Ray McGovern, a former CIA analyst who has vigorously argued that Russiagate is a fiction concocted by his former employers and the Democratic Party to justify a new Cold War and to provide an excuse for Hillary Clinton's loss in 2016. The CIA, FBI, NSA had a major cabal to try to prevent Trump from becoming president. And then once he had become president, uh, trying to make sure that he was emasculated. And the the Russian thing came in very handy as a way of explaining why Hillary lost, but also as a way of saying, oh, we got a really bad, really bad guy there, Putin, and McCain saying, this is an act of war, this Russian hack, okay? So the Mickey Matt, (laughs) this is... This the Mickey Mouse saying, wow, we got an enemy again, Russia, and a couple of years later, China. You can't spend $740 billion a year if you don't have a plausible enemy like Russia and now China. Yeah, well, Ray, it's really interesting that, you know, you, you talked about how all these alternative media outlets have pushed you out. Unfortunately, some of those that you named actually are basically dead, like Alternet. Max and I used to have the Gray Zone hosted at Alternet, and that website basically doesn't exist anymore. It was bought by a major Hillary Clinton donor who turned it into just a platform for cross-posting. And so, I mean, and also TruthDig basically doesn't exist anymore. So there's the element of just alternative media being devoured. But then there's definitely, you know, you're absolutely right about Trump derangement syndrome. And I think what's interesting is that one of the narratives that, some of these ostensibly progressive left-wing alternative media outlets use is that they're against conspiracy theories in scare quotes, right? The idea that these are all just crazy conspiracies. But I always find that very interesting. One, because it presumes that the ruling class, as Max was acknowledging, doesn't organize conspiracy theories as if 
the Iraq war isn't an example and the WMD lies and Gulf of Tonkin and so many other examples throughout history and you know the lies used to justify the war in Libya the the Naira testimony the babies and in incubators to justify the first Iraq war etc but it's also really interesting because to to be frank it's funny hearing people saying that they're not going to publish someone like you Ray because you're spreading so-called conspiracy theories when the reality is that the CIA all it does is organize conspiracies well it spies too but when it's not spying it organizes conspiracies like that's what intelligence agencies do. So it's really wild to me to hear that term, which if I'm not mistaken, Ray, I believe even the use of this canard of conspiracy theories as being this, this taboo thing that no one's allowed to talk about, I believe it was actually the CIA itself that helped popularize that canard. Talk about conspiracy theories. <laughs> right. And I, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, let me jump in there because it was Alan Dulles. Alan Dulles. The king of conspiracies. Yeah. Now, he was head of the CIA, cashiered by John Kennedy, and uh, later, in my view, involved in the assassination of John Kennedy. And if you read uh, James Douglas's book, which is the best on this, JFK and the Unspeakable, perhaps you will also be persuaded that this is the case. Anyhow, uh, he was uh, he went wangled his way onto the Warren Commission to look into the assassination of JFK. And people in Washington were up in arms. Well, wait a second. <laughs> he might have been involved in this thing. How does he get, a, how does he get to be on, on the Warren Commission, right? And so what did Dulles say? Conspiracy theory, conspiracy theory, conspiracy theory. And, you know, that's what they do. Most recently, when the, the name Seth Rich who was the young DNC employee, S. Rich, who uh, was, was murdered on the streets of Washington. Now, Julian Assange himself uh, intimated that Seth Rich may have been one of his sources. He didn't say it, but he very clearly intimated it and offered $20,000 reward for, for whoever did it and later up that reward. Now, to mention that is, uh, is to be a conspiracy theorist, even though more and more evidence comes to light that the FBI had 20,000 documents having to do with Seth Rich. Now, what's the FBI doing? It's a local murder, a local murder. Not only that, but Seth Rich's laptop went missing. Well, the FBI just admitted that they have Seth Rich's Laptop. So this is the use of conspiracy theory to discourage anybody to looking into this very simple thing about why Seth Rich was killed, uh, why uh, Donna Brazil dedicated her memoir to Seth Rich, uh, and why his his his, his parents uh, always at the side of a Democratic Party functionary are uh, determined to sue anybody uh, who might suggest that Seth or his brother Aaron might have been involved. And not only that, but since VIPS, Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity, has written so much about, well, it can't be Russia that hacked. How did Julian Assange get all that DNC email? Well, you know, there's one, only one person whose name we know that had access to this thing at, at the DNC, 
and that's a fellow named S. Period Rich. Uh, so, hello. Uh, this got us subpoenaed up and down. All our NSA alumni and myself uh, subpoenaed by various people that the that are in litigation. The the Rich family suing and asking us for all our all our stuff in our computers. Why we say that it wasn't Russia? Why we say that wasn't Russia? <laughs> and I can, you know, on my on my website, which is raymcgovern.com, I I published the subpoena. It is truly remarkable in what it requests or what it demands, actually. And uh, my first response was pretty uh, uh, well unusual, and I was required in the end to uh, to surrender everything in my computer. Uh, that uh, said Seth Rich or said Russia hacking or whatever. So this is the extent to which this goes. This is a, a really neuralgic issue in, in Washington. And uh, you can imagine why it may be so neuralgic. Well, I got to say, so the FBI has the files on Seth Rich's laptop, but they never investigated the DNC server that was allegedly hacked. So there you go. Yes, because it was because it was destroyed. I should mention by the DNC. Yeah, they're very selective in what they investigate. You know, the fact that Jim Jim Comey uh, picked a cyber firm hired by the DNC and the Democratic Party to do the forensics on what John McCain was calling an act of war by Russia. Hello, hello. Now. Did Mueller buy all that stuff? Yeah, he bought all that stuff. But now we have, as, as some of you know, uh, we have proof that we were right back in December, on December 12th, 2016. It wasn't a hack by Russia or by anybody else. And how do we know that? We have the testimony of the CEO of CrowdStrike, this cyber firm, who under oath, he had to be remembered, reminded that he was under oath. Under oath, he said, well, you know, we have no evidence that any of those emails were exfiltrated, fancy word for hacked, from the DNC computers. Uh, sometimes we get really good forensic evidence of that. We know how we're, but this time we don't have any. So there's no evidence, no evidence. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means that when he testified on... December 5th, 2017, that Adam Schiff, head of the House Intelligence Committee, kept that under wraps. December 5th, 2017, until May 7th, 2020. How long ago is that? That's getting to be nine months ago. Why was it released? Because the head of national intelligence says, look, if you don't release that testimony, old as it is, I'm going to release it. And so Adam Schiff released it. Now, May 7th, 2020, do the math. I think it's between eight and nine months ago. Have you seen that in the New York Times? Have you seen that on Amy Goodman? Have you seen that in Washington Post? They must have missed it because it blows a, a major hole in the whole theory about Russian hacking. Here it is, the only cyber firm that looked into it saying there's no evidence of a hack by Russia or by the earth, <laughs> and the media can ignore that with impunity. People can't look for stuff that they don't know exists.
Yeah, I always wondered about that, um, how little coverage that revelation got. I think, you know, Aaron Mate, our colleague, might have gone on Tucker to talk about it because it's like the only place where you can fart or cough in public if you're like challenging Russiagate anymore. And uh, that was it. And it was pretty staggering. It was something we knew from the beginning that the FBI never had the server. Then we learned CrowdStrike didn't even have it. And considering how compromised CrowdStrike was, it was just a joke from the beginning. But that was really just one of so many revelations that were kind of buried in this atmosphere of constant emergency, where we're constantly told that there's an act of war that has taken place. The last one was, I guess, the solar winds, where we never saw any evidence that Russia was responsible. And some FireEye CEO I read recently got a postcard that was mocking him uh, about attributing it to Russia. FireEye is one of the cybersecurity firms that was brought in to do the attribution or was hacked itself, supposedly. And so that postcard is being used as evidence that Russia was behind it, as if some American couldn't have sent it to mock them. So we, that was referred to as an act of war in Cong by Congress. Russia gate the, the DNC hack was called an act of war on par with Pearl Harbor. And then the media kicks in and creates this constant atmosphere of emergency. Oh, um, you know, Black Lives Matter is a uh, Russian active measure. Play an NFL player is taking a knee. Russia media is supporting that. So it's an active measure and it's all an act of war. And you get people who are anti-Trump in a state of constant panic to the point where they're unable to think critically anymore. And those of us who still stay consistent about, and, 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 and we've, we've been vindicated about Russiagate, we're called conspiracy theorists. Conspiracy theorists have been the national security threat by the FBI. And you have conspiracy theories out there, like the QAnon conspiracy theory, which have been introduced, I think, deliberately to help Donald Trump. QAnon conspiracy theory focuses on the notion that there are pedophile elites who are abusing children and only Donald Trump and his administration can stop this criminal pedophile cabal. And it's fallen on very fertile soil. At the U.S. Capitol, there were lots of Q flags, Q um, sweaters, and basically people listen to Q and believe that Q is this person deep in the national security state telling them what the, the real truth is and also explaining how these dark forces are constantly sabotaging their agenda to make America great. And what it's done is it's taken all this anti-establishment energy and brought it into a political cul-de-sac. And I think if I'm to be extremely conspiratorial, the same way I am about 9-11 truther and how legitimate skepticism of 9-11 was turned into ridiculous Alex Jones level conspiracism, that these kind of conspiracy theories could themselves be psyops using military intelligence tactics to reinforce the agenda of the establishment. And it blew back on January 6th with this attack on the Capitol. So now we're in an atmosphere where skepticism, legitimate skepticism, and the notion of conspiracy theories as, as a national security threat 
has uh, additional, I mean, there's just this additional layer of repression where, and, and, and I notice it, that the term conspiracy theorist is weaponized by centrists against people on the left, like Jimmy Dore, when he was pushing force the vote, to vote, to push these progressive members of Congress to withhold their votes from Pelosi until she brought a Medicare vote, Medicare for all vote to the floor. There was this chorus of Jimmy Dore is a conspiracy theorist. We get it at the gray zone. We're conspiracy theorists. I think this term is going to be weaponized more than we've seen in the past in order to banish people from social media, link them to the insane model of thinking that carries so much weight on the far right with QAnon, and to basically reinforce and retrench the position of the bipartisan foreign policy consensus, which actually engages in conspiracies all over the world to advance its agenda. Yeah, well, I wanna, I'm going to cut to you in a second, Ray, but just to jump on what Max said there, we've also seen it expanded, this term, this insult abused so much that now, uh, for instance, in the November 2019 coup in Bolivia, if you acknowledge that it was a military coup backed by the United States, you were called a conspiracy theorist. If you acknowledge that the role of lithium was important, not the only factor, but the fact that Bolivia has the largest lithium reserves in the world, and you need lithium to create renewable energy, to create batteries, to fund a, or to build the technology for a Green New Deal. If you acknowledge that, you are a conspiracy theorist. If you acknowledge that Venezuela being, having the largest oil reserves in the world is a factor, a key factor in the U.S. coup attempt there, if you call it a U.S. coup attempt, you're called a conspiracy theorist. I mean, the term has become so watered down now that it's not even just used to refer to some cranks who think that, like, you know, Alex Jones, that, like, they're making the frogs gay. But, like, if you challenge... I remember hearing it when if you, people who criticized the Iraq War and WMD, that conspiracy, if you criticize those lies, I remember being... You know, people would sometimes call you a conspiracy theorist, but... It wasn't as common as, as today, where if you challenge anything about the U.S. bipartisan foreign policy orthodoxy, you're called a conspiracy theorist. Or, or a genocide denier, if it relates to Xinjiang or uh, Syria, wherever, you know, humanitarian interventionist narratives, the Samantha power model is, is in play. And if you, if you challenge that, then you are insensitive to humanity. You're a genocide denier. Yeah, I know Bill Casey, uh, who was uh, Ronald Reagan's uh, Central Intelligence uh, Agency director and head of the whole intelligence community. I used to brief him uh, every morning about 1130 after I got back from downtown briefing his uh, superiors, really, the president, vice president, and so forth. He wanted to know, of course, what they were interested in. Now, Bill Casey is famous for a lot of things, but among the things he's famous for is at the first cabinet meeting, uh, he said, and I quote, we'll know that we've been successful when everything the American people believe is false, period, end quote. Ray McGovern, interviewed by Ben Norton and Max Blumenthal of the Gray Zone. Although the media these days refer to every black activist and protest group as Black Lives Matter, today's youth-based black-led movement is made up of many organizations. One of the newer groups is the North Carolina-based Asada Collective. 
We spoke with Crystal Ezza, a college nursing school graduate and member of the Asada Collective who has been organizing against police repression in both the United States and her birthplace in Africa. For me personally, I am a first-generation Nigerian. So the issue was like, you know, very close to home. And with my parents, they actually talk about, you know, the political situations that happen over in Nigeria, even though they're now living in the U.S. So when I heard a lot about the police brutality, which is often, you know, normalized over there in that country, there was like, you know, a sense of frustration, you know, wishing that, you know, I could do more for my countrymen over there, despite living in the U.S. So, you know, talking with a close friend, we discussed that there was not a lot of representation for queer and trans protesters who are also fighting against NSR's movement. So just like a couple of nights of discussion, we decided to, you know, start a way to support those protesters and, you know, their safety as best as we can. And of course, the Asada Collective opposes the police and their behavior in the United States as well. So I suppose that was a good fit, the SARS situation. Yes, indeed. I completely oppose any form of policing internationally as well as in the States. Well, here in the United States, many activist organizations have taken up the call for abolition of the police. Do you hear those same kinds of demands coming from Nigerian youth? Oh, yes. We're hearing the same message from Nigerian youth as well, trying to abolish policing. And I think those cries for abolition have been heard for decades. But considering that the corruption of the police is often just normalized, and I have the privileged to even go to Nigeria before when I was a kid. I remember even having my parents discuss, like, yes, the police is the corrupt. Like, yes, it's normal to even just pay any type of fees just to get by them or to pay them dues. That way they don't make their life miserable. So yes, the call for abolition, I believe, was very adamant for the Nigerian youth. And how have the Nigerian authorities reacted to this international cry of opposition to their policing? I wasn't surprised to see them deny any forms of police brutality that were occurring, especially with President Buhari, who has been in power for like how many years. So, of course, there was a lot of denial. One instance was especially when a majority of the protests that were happening in Lagos, where you have the Lagos governor just refuse the instances of police brutality that was occurring and issuing out statements to the media, making false accusations. And tell us about the Asada Collective's work on opposing the police, their existence, in North Carolina, where you're based. Right now, our work kind of centers on trying to not only build our own political knowledge about police brutality, but also to do the same within raising, like, 
the um, conscientiousness of people within the South. So especially since we're based in North Carolina, I think a lot of times people tend to undermine organizing that do occur within the southern area of the United States. So with our collective, right now we're trying to uplift ourselves with creative projects around political organizing, but to do the same with the people by educating them. And And educating yourselves. Education is a continuing process. Yes, yes, education will always be a continuous part of my life. And with the people that I work with, I'm so grateful because I'm constantly learning things and also unlearning things that have been taught to me by America, you know, with the brainwashing that has probably started since I was, you know, a kid in school. So it's been such a great thing to witness the formation of this collective. In the process of this SARS campaign, you've got to know, I'm sure, lots of activists in Nigeria. Could you comment on the comparative levels of political sophistication among North Carolinians and folks in Nigeria? Well, witnessing the NSARS movement, especially on social media, we came across a lot of activists with backgrounds in socialism and Marxism. So it was, you know, really refreshing to see their political intake and their knowledge of referring to as socialist, you know, ideology, they're living in what people consider to be a developing nation. So for them, the struggles of the working class were prominently compared to over here in the, where in the U.S., where some people still would consider the U.S. to be more refined or more developed compared to other places in the world. And how did the Asada Collective come together? We came together from, I guess, just like, you know, a group of friends and a group of like-minded people who were just wanting to, like, you know, build something and just to build something of our own and to learn from each other. So I think that's what I thought was really beautiful about it when it comes to organizing and mutual aid that Anything is possible when if it is just two or three people, if you have the willpower to do so. And what's your main focus of organizing here in the United States? Basically, I want a radical change of how things are going on. And I guess I'm getting sick, I mean, sick of, of all the oppression, brutality, discrimination, I just want people to be happy. I guess, like, I, it's, it's like, you know, a simple statement, but I just want everyone to be happy and living here in the U.S. and for them to live, like, you know, best lives while having worrying about the fears of, fears imposed by the U.S. government. That was Crystal Eza of the Asada Collective. Academics make up an important section of the current movement for social transformation. Dr. Ugo Edu teaches African-American studies at UCLA and is a medical anthropologist. She's done field work in Brazil and thinks that environmental justice should be at the cutting edge of the movement. Yeah, I definitely do. I think when we think about 
where we live, one's neighborhood, the kind of community that we're a part of, think about the possibility of going to the park as part of whether it's leisure, part of building community, socializing, or whether it's part of actual health, like you go to the park to exercise or to walk as part of your regimen for health. If the police are stopping you arbitrarily to check and see if you're carrying drugs or you just don't even feel safe going because you don't even want to have to risk interacting with the police, then yeah, we can talk about that as creating an unsafe environment. You don't feel safe, you don't feel well. The kind of anxiety, the kind of vigilance that is necessary to live in a place that has the presence of police, not necessarily for your protection, but just the, the purpose of policing you. That doesn't bode well for you in terms of well-being, in terms of one's health. So yeah, I think that thinking about police brutality and ways to address the kind of abuse and, and brutality that police are inflicting upon communities of color, particularly black communities, I definitely think that thinking about it in terms of environmental justice and health justice makes sense. I would even argue productive justice, which is a still is more maybe my area than environmental justice. But yeah, I definitely think it's worthwhile to think about the kind of ecosystems that we're creating and how those ecosystems are different when there's over-policing in certain areas and different amounts of policing. Yes, you've done work in Brazil, Brazil and the United States as the world's two largest white settler states are attached to superlatives in terms of police violence and also in terms of the casualty figures for COVID. Is there a a connection uh, here between the white settler state, the history of violent racial oppression, the health emergency that is gripping both nations, and uh, the behavior of police? Certainly, I think in both cases, both countries, black people were liberated, and I say that with quotes, and left to the margins, left to their own devices, right? The positions that have been available for black people have tended to be those that are reminiscent of the positions that were available during slavery. And obviously, Brazil had a dictatorship, the U.S. has not had a dictatorship, depending on how you think about the president. So that also shifts and changes the kind of ways that black people have been able to organize and the kind of black consciousness movements and the timelines around that. But definitely in Brazil, we know that black people are more likely to live on the margins, more likely to um, live in communities where they don't have access to good education, to healthcare, security, sanitation, housing, jobs. But again, the police come in and kill when they decide to. And we can think about the similarities to black communities here in the U.S. And this, the kind of way that Black people are made to be fungible, to be exterminable, right? We can, we can be killed without any repercussions, without any consequence. And it doesn't really matter in many cases whether the police are Black or white. And we see that in Brazil as well. A lot of police oftentimes could be considered Black. And their attitudes towards other black people, you wouldn't, you couldn't tell that this was another black person talking about another a black person that wasn't a police. So I think the ways that that black people have been conceptualized since slavery and since that kind of moment 
both in the U.S. and Brazil, continues to carry through and continues to inform the ways that Black communities, Black lives can be lived and less tolerable in terms of treatment from the police. We're still seen as criminal, always already criminal. We're always suspect. We're subjected to searches unnecessarily and it's justified by the state, justified by society in many cases. Along with demands for community control of police, we have long had demands for community control of development and communities defining what is development. And all of this is deeply linked to environmental questions and environmental justice. Yeah, absolutely. I think the question of what stores are allowed in the communities, what kinds of uses of land are possible in the community is all, yeah, absolutely tied to these questions around environmental justice and food justice. But often we're not involved in that process. We don't get to decide those kinds of things. When the government decides to invest in our communities, we have to either adjust or we have to ship out. We have to move out because we can no longer afford to live there. And so I think that's definitely a question that's relevant to the U.S. and Brazil. There's a lot of work that women are doing there. Part of a group called Hedgy Sons, and they do a lot of work around food insecurity and food um, sovereignty and dealing with these kind of questions, right? Even just kind of cultural practices that are related to the production of food, you know, the kind of meals that you eat. So, yeah. You're a medical anthropologist, and I suspect that your specialty has a lot to say about why black folks in the United States and in Brazil are suffering such high death rates from COVID. Black people are suffering with their interactions with the healthcare system even before COVID. So that's interacting with the, with the healthcare system. Black people are suffering because of the society in which we live in, right? So when we talk about these ideas of comorbidity, why are we more likely to have hypertension or why are we more likely to have liver disease, uh, diabetes, et cetera, right? Which these things are supposed to possibly exacerbate COVID-19. In the, the case of Brazil, you have similar instances as well, similar numbers and disparities. And then you also have the, when you had the order to stay at home, a lot of people are living in what we can deem overcrowded housing situations. So then even that question of who's coming in the house and who's in the house and spacing, social distancing becomes a kind of an impossible kind of demand, if you will. And most people, if you're, if you depend on daily hustling to be able to eat, then again, that question, that demand to stay at home becomes difficult to to fulfill. And then again, this question of what's the kind of jobs that are available for black people. If your mother is a domestic servant in someone's house who just came back from France, and you don't really, she doesn't really have the option of saying, I'm not going to come to work until you quarantine, you know, then you're at high risk of possibly getting COVID from this woman who just came back and then infecting your whole house. And I believe that the first person that died from COVID was a domestic maid who her employer had just come back from France. And, you know, her employer didn't die, but she did, right? So, and again, we didn't get the kind of access to healthcare that she was able to get or not get. And so it's the racism, right? The institutional, the structural racism that makes Black people more likely to die than any kind of other reasons. There's something about Blackness that makes us more susceptible.
in this epidemic, lots of people have come to the conclusion, some of them with surprise, that the United States really does not have a national health care system. And you know that's surprising. I guess if you're not paying attention, then, because, yeah, I just think that some of the things that are surprising to people, it just kind of reveals people's privilege and their ability to extract themselves from what's happening for the majority of people. You mean because they have good private health insurance, they assume that is a health care system? Right, or I guess people are thinking that Medicare or Obamacare, I mean, unless you ever used any of those systems or been with someone who's tried to access care. I mean, if you're paying attention on some level, I just don't see where we would get that we have a national healthcare system. We don't. That's why I'm like, I'm shocked. I've always, I think, had healthcare to be my parents' employment or because I was a student and now through my employment, but I'm very aware that that's not the case for everybody. I'm aware that there are people that have to go to clinics or they're dependent on like graduate you know, medical students who are trying to serve the community and so they're probably from the clinics and that's where people go to get health care. Or they're depending on health there, they're hoping that they go to Walmart and you know, be able to see their blood pressure and then try to figure out from there what to do. Or that people go to the go to the hospital and they have this huge bill that they're now left having to figure out how to pay. So I just think that that's a, there's a divorce from other realities, which I think that happens when you are super privileged or just we out of touch with what's happening. You're a professor at UCLA, but you've also recently become a holistic fertility doula. How are those two connected? Yeah, um, I teach this class called Reproducing While Black, and we talk about what are you know, the states of black reproduction in the United States, but we also try to think about it globally. And the first time I taught it, I think I left the students pretty depressed. <laughs> and I felt bad about that. And they also were kind of like, well, are there solutions? Is it just all doom and gloom? And some of them, we actually read, read Dr. Donna Ane Davis's a chapter in her book, Reproductive um, Injustice. I believe it was the last chapter where she talks about doula work. And so some of the students were really inspired and afterwards came up and told me that they were interested in becoming doulas, some were interested in becoming midwives. And I was taken by that and I also really appreciated um, Dr. Davis's work and the fact that she also went into doula work and I thought to myself, well, you know, it's one thing to teach a class, it's one thing to research about it, but what am I doing besides that to actively intervene on this problem? And as a black woman, this is something that I will have to face at some point. So I'm not ready to go back to medical school. <laughs> I wasn't going to become a midwife. And so I felt that doula work was an important way to be able to intervene. And so, you know, there's many different ways that you can become a doula. There's different kinds of doulas. And I'm also working to become a full-spectrum doula and a childbirth educator. And I just happened to be able to do the holistic fertility doula training through the National Black Doula Association faster. And so, yeah, I've been certified as a holistic fertility doula, but haven't actually started working just yet. Um, I'm hoping that maybe this year I'll be able to start assisting people. Infertility and infertility in particular is something that 
we still don't really talk about in the black community because of the ways that we've been seen as overreproductive, as always already fertile. And I think we've also kind of taken that in and we see ourselves in that way as we are always fertile. Fertility is not an issue for us, but a lot of black women actually do suffer with infertility and are often unable to get treatment or fulfill their, their dreams, their reproductive dreams. So I feel excited to be able to at least be able to assist in that realm, you know, at least thinking about the before the medical interventions related to addressing infertility to be able to provide some options for fertility that are less expensive than, and less invasive than on a lot of the other options. That was UCLA professor Dr. Ugo Edu. Mumia Abu-Jamal has been a political prisoner for more than two generations, but Abu-Jamal is known around the world as a keen observer of current affairs. His latest essay is titled, The American Way of Fascism. Look at the crowds savaging the walls and halls of the U.S. Capitol. Who are they? Where did they come from? Well over a decade ago, an American journalist saw them and wrote about them. Chris Hedges, who once wrote for the New York Times as foreign correspondent covering wars, famine, and fallen states, published a rather remarkable book in 2006 entitled American Fascists. Its subtitle, The Christian Right and the War on America. Tracing this American religious strain from 16th century Calvinism in Europe, Hedges goes deeper and examines this movement's inner motivations. Hedges explains, the movement is fueled by the fear of powerful external and internal enemies whose duplicity and cunning is currently at work. These phantom enemies serve to keep believers afraid and in a heightened state of alert, ready to support repressive measures against all who do not embrace the movement. Chris Hedges. When neoliberalism rose to power in the 80s and 90s, it did so on the backs of the black poor whom it consigned to the prisons and to many white workers who lost their manufacturing jobs and the worlds it gave rise to of rising wages and were shuttled off into the struggles of NAFTA or the North American Free Trade Agreement. They were swept into worlds of wonder, of high volume faith, and to war against the wealthy. It's American Christian fascism. That's what Chris Hedges calls it, y'all. And it can only get worse. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.